For most of us, even those of you here who love Jesus with your whole heart, soul, strength, mind, you struggle with the fact that God is a God of judgment. There's a part of you in your compassion, in your love for people, like, oh, yeah, I just don't get why it's that way. I'm going to explain it to you. And I think the reason we struggle with the concept is because we make it a philosophical thing that we think about in the abstract that we don't make it personal. Many people struggle with the concept that God is judgmental. You too may have difficulty accepting this truth. Today though, Pastor Daniel will remind you that judgment is really the first part of the gospel message. All have sinned, and that sin is in direct conflict with the perfect creator of the world. God cannot tolerate sin, and to be who he is, he must be the judge. Pastor Daniel will remind you, too, though, that Jesus took the judgment for you. Now, here's Pastor Daniel in Jonah chapter 3 as he begins his message, God's Plan All Along. It's so much fun being a parent. For many of you, you know what that means, right? When you're raising your kids, it becomes both comedy and terror sometimes, depending on what's going on in your house. My kids have the distinct pleasure, of course, of being raised by a a pastor. So they uh, grow up hearing stories of themselves as interpreted from me to people. And so it's always funny because whenever I talk about my kids, they end up hearing the story from somebody old and they say, tell me the story that you told about me today at church. And so uh, normally I tell stories about my son Obadiah mostly because he's nuts. And the stories have a, have a tendency to be really, really exciting, and, and he quite enjoys that. But I wanted to share with you a story about, um, about my daughter, my, my middle child, Maranatha. And Maranatha looks exactly the way her name sounds. She's, she looks like a little Italian baby, you know. She's got this dark, curly hair and these dark eyes. And Maranatha, she's the boss. And not like she thinks she's the boss. Like, she literally is the boss. And, and so Maranatha has uh, the gift of teaching, you know. And so Maranatha knows exactly what's going on. She knows why it's going on. And, and she will explain to you all the details. And so sure enough... Uh, Maranatha gave her heart to Jesus a couple years back on her own. Uh, her, her kindergarten teacher here at Cornerstone explained to her that, if listen, if you want to walk with Jesus, you just need to ask him into your heart. And, and so, I mean, we had talked to her about Jesus a good bit, but it was her decision. And then she's like, it's, I need to be baptized. And so we, uh, we held her out for a while because she was young and we wanted to make sure that it was like the real deal. And every time a baptism would go by, Maranatha would get very, very upset. I can't, why wasn't I in the waters of baptism? And I believe in Jesus and I want to be baptized and God's word says I should be baptized. And she goes through the whole thing. So finally, you know, it's time. We can't hold it back anymore. It was time for us to let it go because we couldn't hold it back anymore. Sorry. We're almost past the frozen thing. Sorry. But, (laughs) and so sure enough, 
she's like, okay, I'm going to be baptized. And so then Maranatha sits me down and she explains to me baptism. Because that's what you do when you have a six-year-old. And she's like, now listen, dad, this is what baptism is all about. She's like, see, there's the water there. When I go into the water, it's like just the way Jesus went into the tomb. And old Maranatha, because she's so old, old Maranatha is gone. And then I come out of the water, just like Jesus came out of the tomb, in new knife, brand new Maranatha. And I was just like, you know, sweetie, I'm actually a pastor. <laughs> and I'm like, I actually think I'm going to be in the water with you too. And she's like, oh, if you're going to be in the water, then you need to pray for me before all this happens. You know, and, and there's that part of me at that moment, it's like, well, I guess you guys don't need me around very much. Maranatha has got this thing covered. <laughs> now, I tell the story because the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is so simple that a five-year-old can get it. That's why it's called good news. We love education, but you don't need a seminary degree to understand what God designed to be so simple, so simple. And it's so simple that oftentimes those of us who believe it choose to make it complicated. It's like we, we go from believing the simple gospel of who God is for us in Jesus and what he's done, and then we create religion around it. And for a lot of people, when you start talking about Jesus, it's not gospel, which literally means good news. It's not good news. Why? Because the message and the story we're telling them isn't gospel at all. It's now I'm going to give you a set of rules that you need to abide by, and hopefully if you do that, God will be happy with you. My friends, that's not gospel. That's just someone else to try and make happy. And so many people don't see the message of Jesus that we believe as good news. But I'm here to tell you the problem isn't really on there for them. The problem is with us. And so today in our series in the book of Jonah, this section gives us the gospel in the most simple terms. I got you guys a three-point sermon today. I put on a pastor's sweater to be able to share this message with you. So I want you to open up in your Bibles to the book of Jonah Chapter 3, Jonah chapter 3. Now listen, if you're new to the Bible, we want to get you to the book of Jonah. It's not the easiest book to find because it's in the very last section of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament from Genesis to the book of Malachi, it's about two-thirds of your Bible. And this last section of the Old Testament, they call the minor prophets. Now, as I said before, they only call it the minor prophets because they're less verbose than the major prophets. So the major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. Not quite sure how I ended up in that section, but I'll take it because I can. And then you have these 12 minor prophets. They were less verbose than the major guys. And so the book of Jonah is between the book of Obadiah and then the book of Micah, chapter 3. Now, we've been studying the book of Jonah, and I encourage you all to read the whole book of Jonah every single day for the whole time that we're in the series. I've been really loving talking to some of you. said, man, thanks for encouraging us to read the book of Jonah every single day. You'll notice between the, the four chapters, it's only, what, about 40-something verses. 
And so you can read the book of Jonah in about 10 minutes if you're a slow, methodical reader. But as you keep reading the book of Jonah over and over again, it's amazing how different parts of what is going on jumps out at you on different days. For one day, this one thing speaks to you. And on another day, this other thing speaks to you. So we're studying here the book of Jonah, and we're here in chapter 3. Now, for those of you who maybe haven't been tracking with us, I want to give you the recap of where we are. I'm going to do the first two chapters in the book of Jonah in about two minutes. Here's the deal. God speaks to a a prophet. His name is Jonah. And he says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, that great city, and I want you to proclaim judgment to that city. Right? Now, the Ninevites were the arch enemies of the children of Israel. They were brutal. Nineveh sits in what is modern-day Iraq, right across from Mosul, who we hear about in the news all the time. And literally, the Ninevites in Jonah's day, is absolutely the equivalent of ISIS today. Absolutely arch enemies, brutal, very bad, lots of hostility. Now, you would think for a prophet of God to say, hey, it's time for me to proclaim judgment on the Ninevites, you'd figure that Jonah would be like, yeah! Right? Imagine if God came to you and said, look, I want you to proclaim a word of judgment to ISIS for what they've been doing. Now, I I know you guys would do it on video and put it over the internet as opposed to maybe go there and do it face-to-face. But you would think that the prophet would be excited, but he's not excited at all. He's totally... And so instead of heading east from where he was to go to Nineveh, he heads northwest to Tarshish, which was modern-day Spain, Europe. Instead of heading to the east, he heads to the north across the Mediterranean. He jumps on a ship on the Mediterranean, heading to Tarshish. And you guys remember the story, right? This big storm pops up. The, the boat dudes, they're confused by this storm. They realize somebody did this. This is not a normal storm. And then they end up drawing lots, and everyone's praying, and it comes out, it's Jonah's fault. And they're like, what did you do? And he said, look, I'm a prophet of God. I fear the Lord who created all this. It's my fault. Throw me in the water. And those guys are like, no. Because they didn't want the life of this prophet to be in their hands. They didn't want to have that on their conscience. So they try and get to the shore. They can't do it. Finally, they throw him in. The whole storm stops. And of course, God prepared a fish to swallow Jonah. Now, we talked about this last week. If you have fish issues, especially as it relates to the book of Jonah, listen to the message from last week. I talked about the fish and how it all works. And the reality is, is that that fish didn't happen to be there. That was Jonah's life raft. The fish was there so Jonah didn't die because God had a plan. And we find that Jonah was in the belly of this fish for a long period of time, three days, three nights, and then Jonah finally prays, and we get to the end of chapter 2, and we find out that God speaks to the fish, and the fish barfs Jonah up on dry land. Now, I don't know about you, but I would love to know exactly what God said to the fish to get the projectile vomit, mostly so I would not say similar things so that people wouldn't vomit. But, I mean, is that one of those places in the Bible you're like, don't you want to know what what he said? Like, what's the exact words that the Lord used? Am I the only one who thinks that way? Well, they say curiosity kills the cat, right? And so, hey, I'm interested. So we pick up in chapter 3. And so I'm going to read you this whole chapter, and then we're going to break out our nice and neat little three-part message. So read along with me. In Jonah chapter 3, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, 
saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, he laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now, in verse 1, starting from the beginning again, It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Now, this first verse is a complete parallel with Jonah chapter 1. Jonah is getting a second chance. The first time God said to go, Jonah didn't go. And God gives him the exact same command. Now, I know that there's some of you and you've heard well-meaning Bible teachers who will say, oh, yeah, when the fish vomited Jonah out on the land, he vomited him on the shores of Nineveh. And sure enough, when Jonah went into the city, he looked really weird because all the stomach acids had already begun to digest in Jonah. And that made the message more important. Now, I'm here to say that's really fun, artistic imagery. But the Bible actually doesn't say that. It could have been months. It doesn't say that. Now, don't get me wrong. It's a fun picture. And we all like hearing messages from weird-looking people. At least I hope you guys do. But realistically, it doesn't give us all that. And so it's a nice embellishment. And we like that kind of stuff. I'll be honest. I take a lot of liberties with some things because it makes a nice story. But it doesn't actually say that. At some juncture... The word comes to Jonah again. It's a second time. And Jonah's got a second chance. He's got a new beginning. And I wanted to, before we really get into this, to bring that out because I believe for many of us right now, God has given you a second chance. You've made mistakes. God has asked you to do things and you've abandoned your post. You've bailed out like Jonah. You went in the exact opposite direction. But God has given you a second chance. And what I like about Jonah is even though he ran the first time, Notice what happens this time. Then it says, So Jonah, verse 3, arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Better late than never, right? Listen, if you're here today and what was just said, if God's spirit plucked your heart, convicted your heart, listen, better late than never. If you've been running from God's call, from God's plan, if God calls again, then step on out. Jonah, he learned from his experience, and God's given him another shot, and Jonah steps up and goes. And it says, 
Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days journey in extent. So the idea was is that Nineveh was not a small city. It would have taken Jonah three days to get around in the city. And according to historical accounts from this time period, the city of Nineveh was about 120,000 inhabitants. Now, in Jonah's day in Israel, the largest city was Samaria. It wasn't Jerusalem. And Jerusalem had, had about 30,000 inhabitants. So Nineveh was four times as large as the largest city that Jonah had ever seen. It was before the day and age of planes, trains, and automobiles. Before you can just go somewhere and check it out. There was a good chance that Jonah the prophet had never been outside of the borders of the nation of Israel. So he goes there, and this city is massive. And we find our first point in verse 4. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So this begins with the message of judgment. The message of judgment. The gospel message, the good news, begins with the message of judgment. God wanted Jonah to tell the Ninevites that it was time for them to reap what they had sown. Their wickedness had come before God, and now God is like, now it's time for you to pay for what you've done. It's the message of judgment. Now, by the time this chapter's over, you're going to see why Jonah didn't want to go. And really, next week in chapter 4, as we close out the series, we're going to see more of Jonah's reaction to what goes on. But the gospel begins with a message of judgment. Now, I say that, and I realize that for all of us, we struggle with the fact that God delivers a message of judgment. Right? Most people who don't believe in Jesus, they'll say, why would I want to believe in a God who would condemn people to hell? I mean, this is exactly why I don't believe in God, because God is going to judge the Ninevites. I mean, who would want to follow that kind of a God? I'm sure there's many of you in this room right now watching online. That's you. You're like, this is why I'm not a Christian. This is why I think it's all nuts. Why would I want to believe in a God who has a message of judgment? I want to unpack that for you because I'll be honest, I'm the same way. And I think for most of us, even those of you here who love Jesus with your whole heart, soul, strength, mind, you struggle with the fact that God is a God of judgment. There's a part of you in your compassion, in your love for people, like, oh, yeah, I just don't get why it's that way. I'm going to explain it to you. And I think the reason we struggle with the concept is because we make it a philosophical thing that we think about in the abstract, that we don't make it personal. So I'm going to use a very personal and provocative example. Okay. Imagine there is a man, and this man is a serial kidnapper, child molester, and murderer. Okay? So if you don't have kids, you can realize that that's really bad because you were a kid at some point. There's a person who kidnaps violates and then murders children and does it all over the place. Now imagine that man gets caught, right? He gets caught for it and he confesses it with joy. Oh yeah, you don't even know the half of what I've done. 
And he goes through the whole thing, right? And of course, there's the news coverage and everyone's like, oh yeah, I mean, it's horrible. This man might be the worst guy who ever lived. And man, thank God he got caught. And he goes before the judge and the judge is like, look, I'm a loving judge. Go free. Does anybody think that that's okay? I say that and I, I can feel the tension. Like everyone's like, like that judge, that is wrong. That is unloving. It is unjust. Because what this man did deserves, at the very least, life in prison and probably a lot more. See, all of us, when we put it into real personal terms, where the rubber meets the road, street level for us, we all realize that true love demands judgment. Could you imagine if your spouse comes home and says, hey, listen, I've been, I've been sleeping around, I've been going out on you, and they're like, yeah, no worries, man, have fun. You don't love the person if you respond that way. See, when you make it personal, you realize that you couldn't worship a God who doesn't call right things right and wrong things wrong. You couldn't worship a God who could just let somebody who has been brutal go free. Deep down in the pit of who you are, you think to yourself, that ain't right. That ain't right. So to take it from there to our understanding of God, why would we think it's not right for the judge of all the world to judge justly? See, if God does not bring a message of judgment against wrong, then he's not loving. He's not just. He's not perfect. And he is unworthy of worship. We know another reason why I think we struggle with it Because by and large, we live in a just culture. Now, don't get me wrong. I realize that there's all sorts of issues and injustices in 21st century America. All sorts of them. But by and large, because of the way our government is structured and the checks and balances and all that, by and large, our country is, at least in its structure, has justice baked into it. And so, because you and I, most of you don't feel grossly put off by people or marginalized, we don't value the God who brings things to rights. But if you look at where the church is growing the most in the world right now, it's in China and India, two of the highest populated areas in the globe. And in both of those cases, they were both subject to extreme injustices. Within China because of the communist regime and in India because of the caste system. And for the people who are on the margins of the regime, they hear a God of judgment who will declare right things right and wrong things wrong, and they love it because they've experienced gross injustice. Jesus is real. The concept of a judgmental God is difficult. You don't want to believe that your loving Heavenly Father is also dictating right and wrong and punishing the wrong. Pastor Daniel today reminded you, though, that God has to be the judge. That's why he's God. He's perfect. And in order to remain that way, no sin can enter his kingdom. He cannot tolerate evil, but he isn't heartless. He gives opportunity for repentance. 
Hey everybody, I want to invite you to join me in reaching people with the message that Jesus is real. Would you pray about partnering with us in the ministry of Jesus is Real Radio? Your support in this way helps us to keep sharing God's word and helps us reach more and more people. Thank you for considering partnering. Find out more at JesusIsRealRadio.com. I'd love for you to be part of the Crossroads Community Church family, but I understand some of our listeners can't make it to the actual church building. If that's you, come join us online. We live stream our Sunday morning services at CrossroadsChurch.net. So grab a cup of coffee and join us wherever you are for our time of worship and teaching. Place a marker in your Bibles and join us next time as Pastor Daniel shares more about the character of God and why the gospel message begins with a statement of judgment. He'll also remind you that while sin needs to be punished by death, God doesn't want his children to have to endure it. That's why he sent his son Jesus to take the sins of the world to the cross and die. Because of that, you can be set free. Well, that's all the time we have for today's broadcast. On behalf of Pastor Daniel and the entire production team, we invite you to join us again for the next edition of Jesus is Real Radio.